Well, more of me this morning. Uh, it was great, as I said earlier, it was great to have Shiv here with us this morning, uh, last week, sorry, to share from the book of Haggai. Again, one of those gems from the, the kind of hidden corners sometimes or backwaters of the Bible, uh, one of the minor prophets. And she shared about the, the coming back from exile in Babylon of the, the Jewish people. Well, this week we're going to uh, travel backwards in time just a little bit further uh, while the Jewish people were still in exile in Babylon. But before we get there, uh, let me just see, quick uh, straw poll. Anybody ever lived abroad for a short time somewhere else? Okay, wow, that's quite a few of us. Hey, just call out a few places where you've, where you've lived. I think this is fascinating. Scotland. Scotland. Wales. Wales. China. Yes, sorry, what was this one over here? Dublin. Dublin. <laughs> Very good, Phil. I couldn't do it like you do it. You're the, you're the real deal. Sorry? Jordan, okay. Thailand, right? Papua New Guinea. There was a couple of others that snuck past there. Canada, okay. New Zealand. I think I heard Japan there as well. Was that you, Peter? No? Oh, I'm sorry, David. Yes, of course, Japan. Any other places that haven't got an honourable mention yet? Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Yep, of course. South Africa. South Africa. Wow. Philippines, we are a... <laughs> Stockton. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure over the river counts as overseas, but uh, hey. But if you've ever lived abroad uh, in a, or in a different place, then we'll count that as well. Even Stockton. How about that, Aaron? Good on you. Uh, well, 10 years ago, uh, next month, this was us. Well, this was some of us. You might recognise Louise there. You probably won't recognise Bethany or Emmy. That's Bethany in the front. Um, sorry about the quality of the picture there. Uh, that was us loaded up and heading off from Sydney Airport to the northern reaches of Scotland, which Jody mentioned earlier. Uh, it was for three years while I did my doctoral research uh, at this place, the University of Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland. Who's been to Aberdeen, by the way? Jody, did you make it there? Oh, gosh. Quite a crew of us, okay. <laughs> well, it was, uh, it was early summer here when we left. It was the beginning of December uh, 2012. Uh, it was the depths of winter in Scotland. Uh, so it felt a little bit like we were heading off into exile in Siberia. Actually, someone said to us, uh, apparently to encourage us, they said, oh, Scotland's nowhere near as cold as Siberia. <laughs> Somehow, relatively, that... That didn't kind of raise the bar very high. But anyway, uh, Aberdeen uh, hadn't actually been our first choice uh, of international destinations of preferred um, abode. I had uh, started out my PhD journey in Oxford, uh, which we love, but for reasons with which I won't bore you. Uh, I, I was shifting my studies elsewhere. Edinburgh had been an option, also in Scotland, but not nearly so far north. Um, and uh, also a beautiful city, uh, uh, one of our favourite cities in the world. Uh, it was King College, King's College London and so on. But, but Aberdeen, why Aberdeen? Well, we had been to Aberdeen previously and Aberdeen is known as the granite city if you haven't been there uh, because all of the city is made of this grey granite and it seems like the buildings are granite, the skies are granite, the seas are the colour of granite. Uh, it's just a grey city a lot of the time. And, and did I mention that it gets cold there as well? Uh, well, it's a story for another day, 
But God in his grace and wisdom through a thousand different signs, some subtle, some like neon at night, made it irrefutably clear that Aberdeen was where God was sending us. So with a sense of clarity and peace, if not wholehearted excitement, uh, we found ourselves in winter coats and a snow-covered strange new land. That's Bethany in the uh, pink coat traipsing off through the snow to school with Louise there as well. Hey, this is a little bit like those old slideshows. You know when you used to get people around and bore them silly with your slides? Yeah, sorry about that. But anyway, it's going to end soon, um, I promise. So we set off with this sense of heading into exile. And when we got there, we had a choice to make. And the choice was the same that faces any of you who has moved to a new location for what might be uh, a limited time, a relatively short period of time. And I'm sure if you've done that, you've faced this choice to yourself. And the choice is this. To what extent do we settle down and settle in? Do we put down roots? How much do we invest in finding a church, building friendships from scratch? That takes time. In adjusting to the quirks of another culture and becoming part of a new community? Or do we see ourselves as just passing through? Do we not bother to invest too much because we know we'll be leaving again in, as I say, a relatively short amount of time? Do we remain outsiders counting the days and just criticising the differences in culture that we come across? In other words, do we keep our mental bags packed, looking forward to the day that we find ourselves homeward bound? And the answer probably depended for each of you who's, who's found yourself in this situation on how long you thought you were going to be there. If you're going to be somewhere for three weeks or even three months, you're less likely to invest in setting up life than if you know you're going to be there for three years or 30 years or three score years and 10. Well, this week, I want to turn back the pages uh, to the time that thousands of people from the ancient Israelite tribe of Judah found themselves exiled in a foreign land. Probably not quite as cold as Aberdeen. It's probably a bit warmer um, in Babylon. Because I think they faced something of a similar decision made worse by the fact that they were prisoners of war among an enemy people whom they must have hated and therefore all the more found themselves hankering for home. Now, if you're new to this story, we're looking to a passage in the Old Testament part of the Bible. And this passage uh, follows the prehistory and then the kind of history of the Hebrew or Israelite people for close to a thousand years. Here are some uh, kind of highlights of that story just to help us locate. We won't dwell on this too long, but a quick outline. So around about the 1200s BC, by the way, these are, these are our years projected back onto them. They, they didn't realise they were counting backwards towards something. Oh, I'm living in 1186. Oh, next year's 1185. Woohoo! This is our uh, chronology. But anyway, in about the 1200s, uh, some debate about this, we find Israel in slavery, Moses, the Exodus, uh, Joshua, entry into the Promised Land. In the 1100s, we have the Judges. Anybody name all the Judges? I know James could. Let's not do that now, but anyway. Uh, In the thousands, King Saul, King David are are anointed and appointed 
uh, by God to be kings over Israel. Uh, it doesn't always go well, of course. In the 900s, David's son Solomon builds the temple. Uh, and then we find after Solomon that Israel splits into these two nations out of one. Uh, the northern nation of Israel, the northern kingdom it's sometimes called, and the southern tribe of Judah, who of course have as their capital Jerusalem. And that's the tribe that we'll be following today. Can't explain that, that rogue bracket on the end there, sorry about that. But in the 700s we have Assyria rises as a superpower, uh, we have the prophets of Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah, and then around uh, about 720 BC, this kind of tragic moment when Israel is exiled to Syria. Uh, their capital is sacked by the Assyrian superpower and they're carted off as chattel and slaves. And then in the 600s, but, but Judah is still, uh, is still soldiering on at this point. In the 600s, Babylon becomes the superpower, uh, overthrows Assyria, rises up in its place. And there we get the prophet Jeremiah, and uh, 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 he's, he's somewhat uh, uh, on the scene at the same time as King Josiah, and then after King Josiah dies in about 609 BC. And then really briefly, in the 500s, we find the leaders of Judah exiled to Babylon. Uh, Persia becomes a superpower, Exiles are free to return home. Then in the 400s, a good couple of generations later, we have Ezra, Nehemiah, the building of the second temple, uh, and then so on. Until we get to the zeros, or the zero, zero, zeros, uh, where Rome is the superpower ruling over Israel, uh, which is actually Judah at that stage. And then, of course, we come to the birth of Christ. Now, we don't need to focus on all of that too much, but just to locate where we are this morning, we are looking at the book of Jeremiah. And that happens in this sort of period, about the 600s. And Jeremiah has been, uh, Jeremiah has been warning the people of Judah for about 40 years that they are at risk of the same fate as their northern cousins who'd been exiled to Assyria about a century or so beforehand. But Jeremiah is largely ignored and disaster strikes, not just once, but three times. Three times the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar, um, imagine having to write that all the time, King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, anyway, the Babylonians invade Judah in 601 BC, 597 BC, and again finally with the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC. So Jeremiah had been warning his people, uh, the Jewish people, Jewish coming from the word Judah, uh, of this impending doom, but they didn't listen. So in a, a little in the same way that Ru Russia recently has captured and relocated thousands of Ukrainians, uh, including Ukrainian children, into Russian-controlled areas after the, after the invasion of 597, the Jewish king at the time, Jehoiakim, who's the great-grandson of King Josiah, his whole household, the priests and others, awake and find themselves exiled in a foreign land. And as, as you might expect, they're pretty miffed about it. Not at all too pleased with Nebuchadnezzar and his mob. So some of the self-declared prophets start declaring that the exile isn't going to last. Soon, they say, Babylon's power will collapse and they and all their sacred barriers, this is the Jewish people, and all their bits and pieces from the temple, they'll all be able to pack up their camels and head home. See, they got camel rides. Um, we could do camel rides, I reckon, for carols next year. Um, so... We're focusing on this period here, 
the 600s and then the, the late 500s. Word gets back to the prophet Jeremiah in Jerusalem that some of the exiled prophets are bragging about this kind of imminent end to the exile and encouraging those in Babylon to keep their bags packed, ready to leave. And Jeremiah gets wind of this, and in 594 BC, he writes a letter to those in exile in Babylon to say, no, you are misunderstanding what God's up to. So here's how the book of Jeremiah records it. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the Queen Mother, the court officials and all the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted, that's Jeremiah, he entrusted the letter to Elisar, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of uh, Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Got all that? That's not in the test. That's okay, you can skip past that bit. It said, this is what the Lord Almighty, this is the letter that Jeremiah writes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from uh, Jerusalem to Babylon. And here we come really to the heart of the passage of what Jeremiah says. Firstly, he says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters increase. Oh, sorry, increase there and do not increase, the Lord is saying. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. In other words, you're kind of getting the dreams you want these guys to dream for you. You're kind of getting, wanting to hear the words from them, your so-called prophets, that you want to hear from them. You don't want this exile to last. You're uncomfortable here. You're unhappy here, you're angry, and you're ready to leave. So, you, you know, as kings often do, you gather around the yes men, and they tell you what you want to hear. And the yes men, these so-called prophets, are saying, oh, it's not going to last. God's going to come and rescue us, and the exile will end. Babylon will be overthrown, etc. So here we have a community of people from Judah in a foreign land faced with the same choice that we talked about a moment ago. Do we settle down or do we keep our bags packed physically and mentally? Of course, unlike Lou and I and others who've moved abroad voluntarily, as I said earlier, this mob are prisoners of war and then they're inclined to remain on a war footing with whom they find themselves amongst. So not only are they looking for an opportunity to shoot through, they're probably looking for an opportunity to shoot someone on the way out. After all, Babylon may have won the battle, but surely, they must have thought, God will win the war, and no doubt he'll be there soon to rescue them. In other words, there's no point moving out of the backpackers, let alone planting a veggie patch. But God, through his prophet Jeremiah, says, No, I want you 
to settle in, folks. This ain't an overnight stay. You're going to need more than an Airbnb. You may even want to think about taking out a mortgage, but let's hope the Central Bank of Babylon isn't raising the mortgage rates. Right? And Jeremiah goes on to say, yes, it's for a season, but it's a season that will outlast you. Um, 70 years, he says, you'll be here. And 70 years is, of course, the three score and 10 biblical lifespan. So in other words, he's saying, folks, settle in because you're going to grow old and die here. You're here for the long haul. But then God goes even further, making it more concrete by setting out some clear priorities for the season and setting in which the exiles find themselves. First of all, as we saw, build houses and settle down. Sleeping in a swag is going to get old and cold pretty quickly. Secondly, plant the orchard and the olive groves. In other words, put down roots, quite literally. And don't postpone the wedding. Carry on with your family life. Don't put your family plans on hold. Keep planning and moving on with love and life and multiplying. But perhaps most shocking of all, is what God through Jeremiah says next, when he says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city where I've put you, that is, among those unlike you, who don't even like you, and the people that you regard as your enemies. Now, this must have really rattled the cage of those hearing Jeremiah's letter. That was the uh, kind of occupational hazard of being a prophet, um, not a pathway to to popularity. Doesn't Jeremiah know that these people are our enemies? That they're God's enemies? That they've desecrated the temple in Jerusalem? No doubt the feeling was mutual. The Babylonians undoubtedly were suspicious of or looked down upon the people of Judah. And maybe the people of Judah are thinking, shouldn't we like establish a resistance cell or something? A, A group of partisan freedom fighters take out some local infrastructure or maybe assassinate a few local leaders? And into that setting, Jeremiah says, no. You might be angry with those around you and their king. But this is actually God's doing. He has used Nebuchadnezzar to bring around his purposes. So there's no point hating or hurting or trying to harm those around you. Rather, do good to those around you. Because if they flourish then you flourish. If they prosper, then you will prosper as well. So seek peace, be at peace for them and for you. And then finally he says, don't listen to those prophets promising an escape plan. Those who tell you to keep up the barriers from the community around you. It's easy to be convinced by voices like that, but it's not what God wants for you in this moment. And just briefly, a word on Jeremiah 29.11, which follows after what we've read already. It's a, a kind of famous passage. It goes like this. This is starting in verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And then, you've probably got this on a placard at home somewhere, or a bookmark or something. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you 
and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. A quick word on this passage. This is often taken out of context. God here is not speaking to us as individuals two and a half thousand years later. It's not a personal promise to you and I that our lives will go without hitch, without glitch or without incident. In fact, read in in context, precisely the opposite has just happened to this group of people who have experienced a complete catastrophe. They're suffering profound dislocation, deep grief at the loss of their homeland. And they're in a setting of national upheaval and heartache. And it's in that setting that God says to his people, in the long run, in the long run, I will neither forget you nor forsake you. You won't see it in your lifetime. Your exile will actually outlast you. But I will be faithful to my people, whatever the current circumstances, and even if they haven't been faithful to me. So in other words, God is saying to the people here, take the long view beyond current world events and the current confusion of your circumstances because I'm playing the long game for your good and for your flourishing um, of you and my people. Well, why this story today? We live in a very different setting, very different time and place, a different culture and context entirely. Well, I want to just draw some loose parallels for us today. And up front, let me just say that again, they're they're loose parallels. It's easy to overplay a direct correspondence uh, from the Old Testament to our lives today. But I do think that there is some resonance for us here in what we're going to be talking about throughout November. Over the next three, sorry, over the past three months, as a staff and lead team, that's uh, like our board of elders or our eldership, if you like, our lead team, we've been seeking to listen to God and reflect on what we think his plans might be for us as a church in the next season. It started with our, our survey back in July. Thank you to everyone who responded to our kind of congregational or church survey, which was really helpful input into our planning, ideas, thinking, and our attempt to listen both to the congregation and to God. And then we had a a planning retreat uh, back in early August with the lead team and the staff team just to try to seek God and what he might be saying to us about this next season. But as we've been saying since February this year, we're in a new season as a church. The end of the COVID lockdowns, new leadership, uh, Libby coming onto the team when I did back in January. If you're you're new in recent months, the the background here is that um, after 27 years of of Paul Whiting and Andrew Cole at the helm, uh, I started as lead pastor back in January. And as I often say, I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. But all of that together meant a new season. And this last year I would characterize as a season of transition and consolidation. But now it's time for us to move forward. So throughout the year, but especially over the last three months, the lead team and I, along with the staff team, 
have been seeking to listen to God for a new sense of vision and a new sense of what this next season should look like here at New Vine. And I'm really excited because I think by God's grace, New Vine's best years may yet lie ahead of us. What's all this got to do with um, the people of Judah two and a half thousand years ago? Well, a number of times earlier in the year, I acknowledged that for many who've been followers of Jesus for a long time, it feels a little bit like almost overnight, we've woken up in a brave new post-Christian world. Rather than being more or less the majority position, the Christian worldview now feels like a minority report. And the church is rapidly trying to adjust, I don't just mean our church, I mean the church more broadly, rapidly adjust, trying to adjust to what feels like a new and unfamiliar setting. Young people in particular, but also people my age and other, in other age groups, are trying to work out how our faith fits in this brave new world. And in a sense, it feels like being exiles in a familiar but foreign land. I don't want to overstate that because it takes us into a, a kind of a negative way of conceiving of the church's place going forward. But I, I say it to draw these loose parallels to the people of Judah in Babylon. Their heads, their heads must have been spinning. They'd awoken to a deeply disorienting experience. And their understandable instinct was to just declare that God would somehow come to the rescue, turn back the clock or the camel trains, back to where and how things used to be. Meanwhile, no doubt, they were tempted to stay on their own kind of culture war footing with the community around them. But like Judah, in a sense, we as a church have a choice to make in this moment and in this place where God has us. Will we sit around longing for the past, hoping for things to change back to the way they were, which, let's be honest, is unlikely? Or do we accept and even embrace where God has planted us for this season and find ways to flourish in this time and place to which God has carried us. The Old Testament commentator John Goldingay puts it like this, talking about this passage in Isaiah, uh, sorry, Jeremiah, he says, a parallel in the life of the Western church might be that if God has taken it into exile so that the church no longer counts in our culture, we need to settle down in that position and God, until God wants to restore us. Maybe we have prophets who tell us we can return from this exile sooner or later. And maybe we have dreams of this kind. But in Jeremiah's day, such dreams came out of the people's own heads. They hadn't taken seriously enough the reason that God had taken his people into exile. But the people also need to be aware of becoming demoralized. When you've been taken off into exile, can you be bothered to build and plant? Do you want to bring children into this God-forsaken world? Well, actually, the message given through the prophet of Jeremiah is your job is to flourish because the destiny of God's people is to increase, not decrease, to multiply. So as we move into what God has for New Vine going forward, we want to echo that same spirit, that Jera's message to the Jews in exile was not about compromise, but it was about confidence that God hasn't forsaken his church even in exile. And if the people of Judah can flourish even in a hostile foreign land, how much more can Newvine flourish where God has planted us? 
So a few key points to ponder. Like the Jewish people in exile, we feel that we as a church can flourish going forward, even in a setting where we might feel like we're in the the minority, even in an unfamiliar landscape. As Jeremiah assures the exiles, God has not forgotten you. He's not knocked off. He's not clocked off. The question then becomes, well, how do we go about flourishing here and now? What plans will we make to move forward in confidence that God is still on the throne? And secondly, we believe that that will happen when we continue to seek the flourishing of our church family here at New Vine, when we keep seeking to see relationships flourish, community between us flourish, see families flourish, families of all shapes and sizes. But also, we feel, taking a lead from Jeremiah, we believe that our church will glow and flourish as we pray for and engage with and reach out to and seek peace for our city, being our community around us here, starting with our near neighbours and kind of rippling out from there. Just as the Jewish, ex- Jewish exiles had major religious differences and worldview differences and cultural differences with those around us, and Jeremiah encouraged them to realise that if the community flourishes, then they flourish also. We want to grab hold of that, that posture towards our community around us, to see ourselves as having something to bless our community with. But the key thing that we have to bless our community with goes beyond what Jeremiah encouraged the Jewish people with. And this is where the kind of the analogy breaks down. We want to kind of go one better by helping our community to experience a life-giving encounter with Jesus. Now, the Apostle Paul, who lived 600 years after Jeremiah, saw something that Jeremiah didn't, that we're not just to seek the peace and prosperity around of those around us, but that those around us could actually come to know the same God that we know. That the greatest way to flourish is to follow Jesus and to begin to tap into the fullness of life and eternal life of which Jesus spoke. So, over the coming weeks, we're going to be sharing with you our five key priorities for the next 18 months and some of the strategic initiatives that we plan to implement over that period as well that align with these sort of key desires that I've been talking about. The first of those, I'm just going to mention it briefly as we move towards wrapping up here. The first of those five priorities is a new vision for a new season. Just as God gave the people of Judah a clear direction, a a vision in a sense, of them being established and flourishing in their new context, we also have been seeking a clear sense of vision or direction from God for the season that we are entering into in our context now, we've, we've had a vision statement and a mission statement, and they've served us well. But like all things, visions have a shelf life. They're kind of tied to a season. So we as a lead team felt it was time to listen afresh to what God says the future could look like for us here in this new season going forward. And just as God gave the people a set of priorities, building, planting, marrying, and multiplying, we also have a set of priorities which we think just might bear God's fingerprints. And these will form the basis of a plan which we'll continue to work on between now and January. And the first of these priorities is to bring this new vision. And we're going to do that 
early in the new year. In fact, we're going to hold, um, for the first time in a long time, if not the first time ever, I think the first time in a long time, we're going to hold a Vision Sunday, uh, late in January or early in February. Uh, watch this space. We're just settling on a date. And I think that's going to be a really exciting time. As we share with you what we feel God is calling us to, to strive towards in the coming sort of three-year period. Now, vision, vision one, one writer has described it as an act of seeing what the future can be. An act of seeing what the future can be. And then articulating that potential future in an inspiring, clear and practical way. Vision kind of sets the course. It's like putting your destination into Apple, Max, uh, Apple Maps. Not Apple Max. That could work too. But Apple Maps. Once you've set the destination, you know where to go. You've got a plan to follow. Uh, those of you who are young at heart uh, or lovers of literature may recognise this from Alice in Wonderland. Alice speaking to the Cheshire cat. Would you tell me please, which way ought I go from here? And the cat replies, oh, that depends a good deal on where you want to go. Alice says, I don't care much. And the Cheshire cat says, then it doesn't matter which way you go. Unless you know where you're going, you're not going to end up anywhere in particular. And I guess that's why we want to bring a new vision. But C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, there are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. And I dare to believe that for New Vine. I hope you can believe that with us. Come on us with in the journey. By the way, if you're wondering, uh, Lou and I chose to fully invest. Put our kids in school. As you saw, we found a lovely home. We made amazing friendships. We joined a life group, a church. We jumped at being part of the community every chance we got, and we've never regretted it. In fact, those years were some of the best years of our life, perhaps until now. So let's believe God that there are far, far better things ahead than any we've left behind. All right, to wrap up, a few questions of practical application. Here are some things some ways that you can get on board. Join us for our Vision Sunday. We'll let you know, of course, well in advance when that is. And also consider joining the team. Consider investing, jumping in. Many of you are already and we thank you for that, for the different ways in which you volunteer and serve and help. Others are at a place where it's just not possible because you're absolutely redlining in life as it is. We totally understand that. But maybe you're in a place where you can jump on board in the new year and help us as we move towards um, this future that we think God has for us. And thirdly, be praying for us in these coming weeks and months uh, as we unveil these sort of strategic priorities, the next four of those in the coming weeks, and then also uh, the vision in early 2023. And also be praying for our community, for ways that we can seek the peace and prosperity and that we can flourish even as our community around us flourishes. And just to personalise this a little bit, maybe you're kind of wondering, well, that's, that's all well and good for you as a church, but what about personally? Some questions to perhaps reflect on. 
Have you ever lived somewhere for a short time? Many of you have, I know already. To what extent did you settle down or keep your bags packed? And how do you feel about the decision that you made in those regards? Secondly, might you be in a season of exile now, whatever your circumstances are? And if so, this won't apply to everyone, but if so, have you, have you lost a little bit of confidence that God can help you make the most of it? That God might even be able to help you flourish where you are, regardless of how hard a time you're going through or the place that you're in? And thirdly, what can you do to seek the peace and prosperity of the place you find yourself in, uh, regardless of how you feel about it? Maybe that's not for everyone this morning, but maybe that's for someone to take on board and reflect on. Well, we are going to wrap there. So uh, music team, I think, is coming back for a final song. Thanks, team. Thanks for letting me share that with you. Looking forward to the next few weeks. I think next week we're going to have uh, the Isaacs, Isaac Squared and uh, Libby as well, but hopefully uh, sharing with you our, uh, our next strategic priority for the coming years, uh, which is all around families and next generations. So please join us next week for that. And uh, for now, God bless.